following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We are in the book of James. That's what's happening. And um, we're working our way through this book of the Bible. We're in chapter 2 this morning. And uh, we've got Evie and Riley coming and reading the passage for us this morning. So, coming up, girls, where are you? And we'll get you a microphone. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet? Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Awesome. Thanks, Riley. Thanks, Evie. So the topic that James is talking about in this passage is favoritism. And I want to start with a video clip uh, straight up to uh, just introduce this topic. And this is uh, from a movie called Brooklyn. came out a few years ago. Uh, an example of favoritism from set in uh, Brooklyn in the 1950s. So let's watch the screen and think about how this connects. All right, just a short clip, but it sets the scene. And so you've got a situation there where you've got just a corner store and these two women come into the, the store. One's obviously very influential, very uh, well-off, powerful kind of person, and she's given special treatment. She's served straight away and treated very well, and then you have this woman in more kind of disheveled clothes, uh, wanting something, and she's spoken to rudely, and she's mistreated and embarrassed, really, in front, of, in front of everyone. So pretty straightforward example of what James is talking about in this passage, and we might look at that kind of thing and call it uh, discrimination, or prejudice, or preferred treatment, preferential treatment, or, or just unfair, uh, but James has got a word for this, favoritism. And he uses that word several times in this passage that Evie and Riley read. That's what he's talking about. And so there, there's a modern day, or at least 1950s, example of the kind of thing that James is talking about. And James describes a situation of favoritism that's going on in the first century. Uh, that scene is not unlike the kind of thing that James is describing. Different context, different time, different place, but a lot of similarities. So I want to look at this example that James gives us. We don't quite know from the text whether this is literally something that's happening in one of these churches, 
or whether this is more just a hypothetical example that's the kind of thing that was going on. But either way, it's pretty close to the mark because James uses this to address the issue of favoritism in these churches that he's writing to. So the example is in um, verse 2. He says, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the scene, the setting is a church meeting. Uh, so we can, we can imagine this, right? It wouldn't, wouldn't have been as big as this gathering, probably a house church kind of gathering. But James is describing it, a typical church meeting in the first century, and two very different people walk in. So the first guy is this man wearing fine clothes or expensive clothes and a gold ring. And the gold ring is the giveaway. The gold ring, it's not just a nice ornamental piece of jewelry. The gold ring was an emblem of a person who belonged to a particular social class, in the Roman Empire, and this was called the equestrian class. It's not because they, they rode horses, it's just the name that they had, the equestrian class, but it was a specific group of people, and they were really up in the upper echelons of Roman society. So, so high, they were just below the rank of a senator, a Roman senator. So we're talking like seriously powerful people. These, these were people who had massive wealth in the Roman Empire. They had huge land, land holdings, which means they would have had a lot of slaves, a lot of people working for them, huge business uh, operations that they oversaw. Uh, they would have had massive resources. They often, these people, they held very significant positions of power. So they would have had government positions, uh, administrative positions in the Roman Empire. They would have had diplomatic positions. So this is not just like a, a, a guy who's made a lot of money. This is someone who was right at the top. He's one of the elites in the entire structure of the Roman Empire. So this would be like Prince Harry and Meghan Markle coming into church, okay? That's the level of notoriety we're talking about. That's the level of prominence and position and power that this guy represents. And he just walks into church one day. Then you have this other guy who comes in. Now, the other guy is a poor man, and we're told that he has filthy old clothes that he's wearing. So straight away, we know that he's right at the opposite end of the social spectrum. It was a very tall ladder of social classes in the Roman Empire. And this guy is obviously right on the very bottom rung. He's got no resources. He's got no means. He's got no money. He was possibly a peasant, but even peasants could afford to buy themselves clothes. So he was, he was maybe a beggar, maybe a very, very lowly slave. This was someone that just could not, he could barely survive. So totally dependent probably on other people. He comes in with these bedraggled clothes, all disheveled, unkempt appearance. And he walks into the same church meeting as this guy from the equestrian class of Roman society. And then James describes how these two guys are treated. And it's pretty predictable stuff. You know, the rich man is told, here's a good seat for you. So he's, he's ushered maybe right up to the front here, here's a good seat, you don't want to sit here, or if the music's too loud up here, we sit, sit, sit at the back, wherever you want to sit, where's the best place? You want to sit up on the balcony maybe, and you could look down, wherever he wanted to sit, whichever was the, the pride of place, 
That's the seat that he got. Everyone's pandering to his needs. Everyone's making sure he gets a nice cup of coffee and he's just really looked after in this meeting. Everyone's falling over themselves to help this guy. And then the poor man comes in and here's what's said to him. You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. So this guy doesn't even get a chair. He doesn't, he's not even offered a bad seat. He's not even offered the seat at the back with the crying babies. He doesn't even get that one. He just gets no seat. So he either just has to stand, presumably at the back or the side or somewhere, or, this is the worst, sit on the floor by my feet. I mean, imagine saying that to someone who comes into church. Welcome. So you want to sit on the floor by my feet? That's how you treat an animal. And that's, I mean, is there a worse way of reinforcing social class distinctions and, and reinforcing that someone is superior and someone is inferior than saying, sit on the floor by my feet, you servant, you slave, you beggar, just pushing him down in this, in this way. So you've got this situation of extreme inequality, and that, that's sad. It's sad that these two people are treated in totally different ways, but I don't think that's really what James cares about. The saddest thing that James is driving at is that this is happening in the church. That's the problem. Because when you think about it, this is exactly the way these people would have been treated in the world. Outside of the church, this is, this is totally what they would have been used to. I mean, this rich man, if he was from the equestrian class, every room he ever walked into, he would have been given the best seat in the house. Every time he goes anywhere... He's ushered into the best place. He's got people falling over themselves to meet his every need. That's nothing new. He's used to that. And the poor man is used to probably never having a seat. I don't, you know, who knows the last time that he actually sat on a comfortable seat, this guy. He, he's used to sitting probably at the feet of other people, begging and hoping that he'll have enough for his next meal. So this is exactly the way these guys are treated all the time. But the sad thing is, it's exactly the same when they walk into church. The, the sad thing is not that the church is any worse than the world. The sad thing is that the church is exactly the same as the world. That's the tragedy, really, that the church just mimics the social hierarchy of the world. The church just mirrors the social patterns that go on in the world, and there's no contrast. There's no difference at all, just the same in the church and in the world. Now, I know that we would look at that and say, thank goodness we don't do anything like that at Shaw, right? Thank, we're not going to tell people to sit on the floor. We're not going to deprive them of a seat. We don't have this kind of preferential treatment. And maybe we don't. Maybe we don't have anything quite as, as overt and blatant as that. But I wonder if we tease this out, whether there are some more subtle forms of favoritism that sometimes go on among us. I mean, imagine for a minute if somebody came into church who was a real big-time celebrity. You know, like imagine if someone really important came in. Let's say Barack Obama came in on his recent trip to New Zealand. He just decides to swing by, catch a church service here. Or uh, Ed Sheeran, right? Could have happened on his tour. He just he looks up, best church in Auckland, Shaw Community Church, finds us, comes in, drops in for a church service one Sunday morning. Could have happened, could have rocked up here. Now, how would they be treated? If they walked in the door, would we all be sort of pulling out our phones, videoing them, you know, with hushed whispers pointing at them, going up, getting them to sign our Bible, you know, just swarming around them? What, would, would, we be treat, would we be all starstruck over these people? Or would we just be, treat them as normal people and just say, hey, Barack, what's up? Come, come. <laughs> it sounds weird even saying that. 
but, but could we find it in ourselves not to be starstruck, but just welcome them and, and help them feel like a, a guest and a friend and a family member and, and usher them to a seat and give them a normal old coffee, you know, and just help them to have a, a positive experience among us? Could we do that? Um, and then you think of someone at the opposite end of whatever spectrum that is. Someone, you know, imagine someone comes in and obviously they don't have any money at all. Someone who's obviously living in poverty and they, they are all disheveled and they look like they've slept in their clothes and they, they've got a bit of a smell about them and they're a bit socially awkward and it's, it's difficult. How, how would we treat that person? If they came in on a Sunday morning, how did, how, what kind of treatment does that person get? Do we sort of give them a wide berth, you know, and just kind of smile and, you know, friendly, but we just keep it, we just gradually usher our children around the, the back and we just sort of keep an eye on them in our peripheral vision. You know how you do this to make sure you don't end up in the same conversation as someone else. You just got an eye on where that person is in the room at all times to try and keep your distance. I wonder whether that might happen a little if, if someone like that came into our, into our meeting. And you know, it's things as simple as the kinds of social interactions that happen after, after church. I mean, you think about who are the people that you gravitate towards talking to after church. I saw a church, um, this clip on YouTube where a church did this experiment. They set up a hidden camera in the foyer of the church. And, they, and the pastor was in on this. So what they did is they positioned the pastor there as people were leaving the church. You see the pastor in the shot. And then a couple of meters away from him, they had this, this teenage kid, this young guy, and he looked, I mean, he looked a little bit rough, not too bad. He had a lip ring, I think, he, and he was just kind of just standing there. Uh, and so this was all set up. And so the kid's standing there kind of slouching against the wall. And a few meters away, the pastor is standing there. And they just filmed as people were coming out of church and just seeing how people reacted and responded. And you just see one after another, everyone's going up and shaking the pastor's hand and, and high fives and hugs and hey, buddy, buddy. And not, barely anyone is, is talking to this teenage kid who's just standing there a couple of meters away. He's just getting ignored, 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 ignored as everyone's interacting with the one person instead of the other person. In fact, they even had a counter on screen. So you see the numbers of people that have said hi to the pastor and the numbers of people that said hi to the kid. And these numbers are just going up, 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 up. And I think the kid got to like three out of the whole church coming through. And then the pastor played this clip in church just to tell his congregation off. So... I didn't do that, all right? You'll be pleased to know. There's no, there's no hidden cameras. We're all safe. But I just want you to think about this. You know, think about after church, who do you naturally, because we don't, we, I know we don't mean to do this. We don't mean, we're not, we're not mean-spirited people. It's just that we naturally gravitate towards people we know, people we're comfortable with, people we're familiar with, people, to be honest, who are like us. And we end up in all of these little social circles and social clusters. And there are people, many times, on their own. I know this because I often talk to them. And they're there and they're new, or sometimes not even new, sometimes been there for a long time. But they're not, it's hard. they find it hard to break in. They find it hard to get into those conversations, especially if they're more introverted, because we don't think about it. We just go to our normal people, friends, family, whoever, and we're just, it's not even on our radar. But I wonder if James was here and watching some of the social interactions that go on after church, whether he would say, you know, that is basically what I was writing about in my letter. It's like another form of it, and maybe it's not so overt, but that is a form of favoritism, because you are favoring the one over the other. There's this us and them, and there's this in and there's this out, and there's this distinction that's happening. It's subtle, yes. Maybe it's even unintentional, but it's there. It's happening, and it should not be. 
So the word that James uses for favoritism is, it's based on the Greek word for face. It literally means accepting the face. And it's this idea of accepting someone or favoring someone based on face value things. So based on their appearance or, based, or just based on what we think of them or how we perceive them or how they act or how they talk or just what we, whatever filter, whatever criteria is in our head, we accept some and we favor some based on those things and then we kind of reject others or we, we, we distance ourselves from other people based on those same things. We accept the face of the one and we reject the face of the other. That's favoritism. Now, favoritism has been part of pretty much every culture in human history. It's just embedded into the structure of the word. Certainly not just a church thing. It's a social problem. I mean, in its worst form, favoritism looks like the gas chambers of Auschwitz, doesn't it? I mean, we sort of think it's this sort of social banter after church. Well, it gets a lot more serious than that. The Nazi genocide is is basically favoring certain ethnicities and and rejecting other ethnicities. That's a state-sponsored form of favoritism that ends up in genocide, attempted genocide. That's favoritism. But of course, we recognize it in in all sorts of other forms that are more subtle, day-to-day kinds of forms. I mean, you think about the way in Western culture that we favor the famous. You know, think about how important it is for people to be famous today. And we love people, the ones that are famous, doesn't matter how you got famous. You know, you could have just put a whole lot of videos up on YouTube, and but you're famous. Or you could have won a Nobel Peace Prize and been famous. It doesn't matter. You just get famous and we favor the famous. Those are the ones we want to be like. Those are the ones we want to follow on Instagram and Twitter and, and dress like and talk like and, and, and follow the famous ones. Our society is geared to favor the famous over the ones who don't have profile or celebrity or, or many followers. Think about what this looks like just in your everyday life. Just examples of the kinds of ways that we accept the face of one and maybe not so much the other. So think, of, think of racial favoritism that goes on. And I know we're not overtly racist. We're not making racial slurs, but it's just we gravitate towards people of our culture. We gravitate towards homogenous people, people who are like us, people who share our ethnic background, and we just tend to gravitate away from others. Think about uh, economic favoritism. People who have the marks of success, however we define it, people have wealth, they have lifestyle, they have positions of, of great prominence and power. We want to emulate those people. We want them to mentor us. We, wanna, we admire them. We favor the wealthy. We favor those at the top of the socioeconomic ladder. Uh, sometimes it's generational favoritism, isn't it? Do, do, can you hear this sometimes? You know, we kind of dismiss other generations, you know, kind of dismiss older people, don't know anything, or younger people, clueless. You know, we sort of just write off whole generations of people who are not like us, and we just caricature them as stereotype them. And oh, you know, so generational favoritism happens. And then, of course, sadly, it happens in the church as well. We're not immune. And, and sadly, too often, it's just like it was in James's day, where the church doesn't look much different from the world, but all of this kind of social hierarchy that happens in the world, it tends to get mirrored in the church as well. So what do we do? How do we deal with this, this, this disease of favoritism? How does the gospel combat favoritism in our lives and in our culture and our society? Well, James gives us a big step towards this 
and the way that he starts this whole discussion. Did you notice the way he gets into this in, in the beginning of chapter 2? He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. It's interesting that James starts with Jesus. This is the only time in the body of the letter that James mentions Jesus. I mean, he's all about Jesus, but he only mentions him twice, once in the introduction and once here. So this is significant, and James wants to ground his whole discussion of favoritism on the person of Jesus. And what James is saying is, think about Jesus. Jesus was the most glorious person who ever existed, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I mean, compared to him, there is no greater or worse or, or, or better or worse, inferior, superior. It's, it's Jesus. He is glorious. And yet, in spite of his glory, when he walked on this earth, Jesus never showed an ounce of favoritism towards anyone at any time. He just didn't. For the 33, 34 years that he lived, there was no hint of favoritism with Jesus. He never favored the rich he sent the rich lawyer away disillusioned because he called him to give away everything he had. But he, he never showed favoritism towards the poor either, at the exclusion of the rich. Jesus, he just had this ability to move across the whole socioeconomic spectrum. Even in a rigidly class-based society like the Roman Empire, Jesus could just minister to people and connect with people at every single rung of the ladder. He had the very, very poor among his circle, and then he had some very wealthy patrons too, some people of significant means and power funding his ministry, patrons of his ministry, and he, he, was, he wasn't against that. He included them in his circle. Jesus just had no favoritism economically at all. He had no favoritism culturally, even though he's in a Jewish context where there is a lot of antagonism towards people of other cultures, and yet Jesus, think about the ease with which he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well, just walks right across that cultural taboo and engages in conversation with her, this despised Samaritan and a woman, which was another problem in those days for him to be interacting with her. But he just does this. He just doesn't care about the structure and the way that he was taught to relate to people. He just cares what the Father wants him to do. He doesn't show favoritism even to people on moral and religious and righteous grounds. Think about the woman caught in adultery. And Jesus deals with her with such grace and such compassion and rebukes the Pharisees, even though they were supposed to be the righteous ones and this woman's supposed to be the unrighteous one. But Jesus just doesn't have any of this partial treatment. He doesn't have any of this preferred treatment. He just wants all people to be drawn to himself. And this is because Jesus had the very nature of God and Scripture tells us God has no favoritism. With God, there is no favoritism, Romans says. So our response to favoritism needs to be grounded in the character of God Himself, where there is not a single trace of partiality. The old translations used to say, God is no respecter of persons. Some of you still got those translations, maybe King James, whatever it is. God is no respecter of persons. He's created every one of us as human beings with equal dignity, equal glory, equal honor. He shows no favor, no partiality to one over another. And then we see that in the character of Jesus because he fully reveals God's nature and God's character. And then now, as followers of Jesus, we are called to emulate that, to live that out by refusing to show favoritism of any kind, but treat all people with equal love, equal dignity, equal respect, equal kindness. Christians should be the last people on the planet 
to show favoritism. The church should be the last place on earth where you would ever find any trace of favoritism because we worship a God whose nature is totally devoid of favoritism and we have a Savior who never showed an ounce of favoritism. So who are we to come along and start drawing distinctions and a social ladder and treating people better or worse based on whatever is in our heads? It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't happen among Christians. We should be the last people, the least likely people on the planet to ever engage in any form of favoritism. So what does it look like? I mean, practically, how do we, how do we live this out? How do we deal with this issue of favoritism in our lives? Well, let me give you an example of this, a good example, I think. And uh, this is something that happened in our church a few years ago, and it shows that I think we are getting there on this issue. There's a few years ago, some of you remember this, there was a group of Muslims that came into the church, came to one of our Sunday services. Some of you remember this? Yeah, it was an interesting morning. It was a good morning. But the backstory to that is that there had been this dialogue going on uh, between myself and a small group of Muslims connected to a mosque in Auckland and through a mutual person in the church, they were, they were wanting to have some dialogue with Christians. They were wanting to have some conversation with some Christians and just have a bit of interfaith conversation. So they kind of connected with us, connected with me. And so I said, okay, let's have a lunch after church on a Sunday. And by the way, would you like to come to church beforehand uh, and, and come and drop in and, and be part of our church gathering and then we can head up for lunch. And so they were keen to do that. So they'd planned on coming along that morning. Well, on the Friday night before they'd planned to come, uh, there was a terrorist attack. I think it was the Paris attacks, the Paris terrorist attack. It was, it was, it was one, sad that we can't even remember the various, distinguish the various terrorist attacks that happen in our world these days. But there was a major thing that had happened. And I got a call from one of the group, and she said, we're thinking maybe it's best if we don't come on Sunday. We don't want people to feel uncomfortable. We don't want... To, to create a scene, we don't want it to be a problem, just given, you know, everyone's on edge at the moment, maybe it's best we don't come. And I went back on your behalf and said, no, 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 come along. Uh, it, you'll be fi- it'll be fine. Uh, we're not here to judge you. We're not going to treat you badly. Uh, we're not going to, you know, think these things. You, you're welcome to come along and you will find us to be a friendly, hospitable bunch of people, right? So I, I went out on a limb there, but uh, I think you are. So they said, all right, we'll come along. And so they came along on the Sunday. And if you were here, you remember, I mean, it was, they were quite conspicuous, weren't they? Let's just be honest. They were quite conspicuous. The woman had the hijabs on, and traditional Muslim uh, women don't shake hands. So sometimes that was a little bit socially awkward. I went to shake hands a couple of times, and oh, no, pull back. And so you have to sort of gauge that. And then they had with them a guy who was an imam, significant Muslim religious leader from Australia, and he had the full sheik's attire on, this big robe and the headpiece, and he was a tall guy to begin with, and then he had the full regalia on, and he, I mean, they really stood out. But it was just great, I thought, I was proud of the way that you all interacted with them, and it wasn't this kind of pull out the phones and video them, it wasn't hushed whispers, you know, you, you didn't go crazy, but neither did you avoid them. You just treated them normally, I thought. You just, you know, you offered them a cup of coffee, showed them to a seat, just treated them like anyone else and helped them to have a positive time here. And they did, and they had a good time in the service, and we had a nice lunch with them afterwards and talked about some of the similarities and dissimilarities between Christianity and Islam. Now, I think what we were all doing that morning was trying to live out what James tells us to do in James 2 verse 8, where he says, if you really keep the royal law 
found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. Isn't that what we were doing? Isn't that what we were all trying to do that morning? Love your neighbor. James says that's the antidote to favoritism. The opposite of favoritism is not equality, it's love. Love your neighbor. Just love your neighbor. And so we were loving our neighbors. It didn't mean that we were giving up our Christian convictions. Sometimes I think Christians worry about this. Oh, if we're too nice to them, we're not kind of standing up for the truth. We need to let them know that we don't believe what they believe, you know, which is kind of this sort of very adversarial. Listen, we stood in church that morning and we sung the Apostles' Creed, for heaven's sake. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. There's the difference right there. We believe in a God who is three in one. They believe in a God who is one in one. Even to stand and sing that for them would have been total blasphemy. So we can hold our convictions, but we can still treat them with love, can't we? We can hold our convictions as Christians. Yes, we have a different worldview, but we can still treat them. I think sometimes, particularly when it comes to Muslims, Christians are antagonistic. And beyond just disagreeing with their worldview, we can actually be quite mean and quite cruel-spirited, I think. And it's not good. It's not good. Listen, even if you think Muslims are the enemy, even if you think Islam is the enemy, and I don't think it is because the Bible tells us our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but even if you think they're the enemy, listen again to Jesus' words who tells you exactly how to treat your enemies. Love. So it's that you get to the same top by the different road. You know, love your enemies. Don't just love your neighbor. Love your enemies. Treat them with love. We're going to love them. We're going to love them into the kingdom. And yes, there'll be times to we disagree and we, and we see these things differently, but we can still love our neighbor. And that is the opposite of favoritism. Maybe, if, maybe in some ways it's easier to do in a church service, I don't know, than in other spaces in your life. What if the woman in the hijab was not someone in church, but someone standing next to you at your kid's class party? Is that easier for you then to have a conversation with her, or do you still find yourself gravitating towards the parents that you already know and are comfortable with? See, it's hard, isn't it? I think combating favoritism actually involves us taking uncomfortable steps sometimes to walk across the room, and I was going to say shake some hands, but in that case it wouldn't be shaking hands, but just having a conversation and being a friend. If you've got neighbors on either side of your house, one of them are from the same culture as you, one of them from a different culture, which are you more likely to have around for dinner? You know, I think these questions are more searching questions because it's a bit too easy, I think, to read James chapter 2 and say, oh, that example doesn't apply to me, move on. If we search our hearts, I think we'll realize favoritism is quite embedded in a lot of our daily lives. It just crops up in really little ways that we don't notice. But God calls us to dig those up and bring them out into the light and bring them before Him and say, God, this is an area where somehow I'm showing partiality. And I want to be able to be true and faithful to who I am as a child of God and yet treat all people with love, with dignity. And that means taking some intentional steps towards those who I might consider to be other or different or them instead of us. I actually need to be intentional to move towards them because for for whatever reason, those are the ones that I'm neglecting. I would love us to be a church. And I think we're on the road. But I would love us to be a church where whatever distinctions exist in the world, whatever kind of hierarchy there is in the world, in whatever way, it just evaporates when you walk in here. Wouldn't that be great? You can have a billionaire sitting in church next to someone who's just just surviving on a benefit. 
And there is no hint of patronizing, condescending behavior, but just total equality, total just love, mutual respect, and fellowship as Christian brothers or sisters. That those two people could walk up and take communion on equal footing, equal ground, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross, isn't it? This is what God has done. He leveled the ground by dying on that cross, and we dare not make it uneven again. Let me finish by reading you some words of an old hymn that talk about how God has made this possible. You may own earth's silver, have riches untold, but all of earth's wealth, my friend, won't save your soul. You may live in a mansion, all the world know your name, but at the foot of the cross, my friend, everyone stands the same. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Anyone may come there, for there is no cost. Rich man or poor man, bonded or free, the ground was leveled that day at Calvary. And Father, we want to lift up our hearts to you and say, would you expose any trace of favoritism that's lurking in our lives, any way, God, in which we're somehow creating these distinctions between us and them, or better and worse, or whatever it might be, God. Just whether we're doing it in our minds, God, or, or doing it in some way in practice, would you bring it to our attention now by your Holy Spirit? Even though it might be uncomfortable for us to recognize it, would you bring it to our minds? And, and as we realize these things, and as we see these things in our lives and our hearts, we lift them to you, God, and we confess these things, and we say, Jesus, we're sorry that where you've made the ground level, we've made it bumpy again and put people up and people down, and we've become judges with evil thoughts, as James says. Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize that before you, we are all hopeless sinners, but all saved, Lord, or all in need of saving by your amazing grace. Help us to treat each other as brothers and sisters and to truly learn to love our neighbor. We pray this for Christ's sake. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.